Welcome back. I hope everyone liked the last two episodes. I thought I'd try something a bit different and see what people thought about a new format of show. Anyways, we had quite a few stories come to the inbox over the last couple of weeks, and we encourage people to send in more stories to storiesaboutkevinpodcast at gmail.com. Funnily enough, the first story today is actually about a unit I've been to. However, the story has been retold from a different perspective, and I'm not going to be changing it from how it was sent to me. first story. A few years ago, I got posted into the Federation Guard as an Air Force member. This was not long after that hilarious song on the left came out about how to wear your medals. For those that don't know, the Federation Guard is the ceremonial unit for the Australian Defence Force, and they travel around the country and do all kinds of representational activities. Anyways, there was a bit of ironic laughter that used to come out whenever someone would play that song on their phone, and sometimes for a bit of a laugh, some people would play it just to get pumped before a gig. Anyway, one of the boys who was at the guard when the song came out told us that when it first came out it was the laughing stock of everyone and everyone took the piss. He said they were at a gig, someone played it on the phone and everyone was taking the piss out of it until someone said for them to all shut the fuck up about it and stop making fun of it. It was at that point when they realised that one of the girls involved was actually on the bus and was crying her eyes out at the back of the bus. I don't care how she felt, it's a stupid song. Now I'm not going to correct how this was sent in or what has been said. I was there at the time and I heard the exact story. It was a little bit different how that's going, but I'm not going to editorialise the stories that have been sent in. Um, story's a bit off, so look, let's just call it close enough and let's say that, okay, now our next story is from a medic. Okay, this is gonna be gross. I was a medic at one of the training establishments. Not going to say where, not going to say when. Not even going to give you a location where this happened. We had one student, trainee, whatever. He was the biggest malingerer you could ever meet. This guy did everything he could to get out of the training. Everything that could possibly be wrong with him was wrong with him. I started to play a bit of a game. Not ethical, but I knew at the time he was full of shit. Especially when you would send him all the way to base, he would go to the medical centre, get scans, blood tests, x-rays, you name it, and inevitably be sent back to the field with my being a medic in question for sending him in in the first place. So I came up with a plan. This guy was complaining that he wasn't hydrated enough. So I had him stay in the medical tent with me for a full day and monitor his intake. Medical Gatorade, keep track of how much he took in. We had him pee into cups so we could monitor and send that in with him for testing. I'm actually curious here whether they sent the pee or or the data. Um, that's, that's a question I would like to like to know an answer to. Anyway, back to it. Basically, dude was pissing clear by lunchtime. He was improving, so we sent him into the field with strict instructions for his staff to monitor his intake, which they did. Does anyone remember that really good that that video they used to show? Piss clear twice a day. That was that was the takeaway from every year of the mandatory training. Do they still? I, I'm interested. Do they still show that video? That was that was uh, Colonel Colonel Rudsky, I think was his name that he used to do that. Like that was. That, that was one of the... For someone to sit there and, and say, just remember, piss clear twice a day and have just a straight look on their face. That was that, that to me was hilarious. I used to love that 
Like just just how someone could sit there just so stoic and just be like, and remember soldiers, piss clear twice a day. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get back into it. We told him to also keep his food up, eat everything in his ration packs, and crucially, if his dehydration was that bad, we would have expected symptoms like constipation, strong yeah, strong yellow urine. However, we also let him know that other things, such as multivitamins, can cause excessively yellow urine and strong smelling urine. We even showed him an example bottle of multivitamins that have that effect. A few hours later, he was left alone in the tent with those multivitamins, which we conveniently forgot to put away. We organised transport and sent him back into the field. He lasted probably a day and a half from memory, might have been a little bit more. And he was back in, with constipation, bloating and strong smelling and vibrantly yellow, almost fluorescent urine. This stuff was bright. You could use it as a nightlight. Didn't smell like urine. It smelled like that strong over-vitamin smell that you get at the gym when everyone has pumped themselves full of everything and they pee before their workout. Hard to avoid. We had to monitor his bathroom usage and therefore the entire tent stank. That would have been delightful. Um, great. Anyway, so we get him under observation. We give him some stool softeners and we make sure he's not unattended so he can't slip any vitamins in. Three hours in, he does the most violent shit as a result of the stool softeners that we ever seen, and it was absolutely not constipation. It's what happens when you give constipation medicine to someone who isn't constipated. It was bad and nasty. So after another 12 hours of observations and a good night's rest in a cot, we pack him up and send him back out. This time we let him know that his constipation was not severe, and we give him some Coloxal and Senna to be administered with meals by his staff. It should ward off the constipation. We let him know that we would have been more concerned if he'd had a bloody stool. Sure enough, not even 12 hours later, this guy was back. Said he'd been having violent diarrhea, there had been blood in it when he wiped. So at this point, we made the call to take him out of the field. We called the civilian ambulance, who came out to the training area. We conducted our handover with them, and he was taken into the civilian hospital, where he had a meeting with some cameras in order to ensure that his bowel wasn't perforated. Once he had the all clear and discharge summary the next day, we all had a good chuckle. It's unfortunate that medical docs are confidential. I really wanted to nail this guy to the wall as a linger. Only real 100% provable case I ever came across as a medic. That, uh, that's a new one. I wasn't expecting to get this kind of episode so soon, but uh, you know, I'm glad that there's a medic out there that listens to us. That's, you know. So clearly I'm reaching a lot of people everywhere, um, but I'll happily take all the good medic stories I can get because I imagine you guys get some really, really weird shit. Um, now, Thinking back to a couple of episodes ago to the soldier that was attempting the world record for putting rounds in his foreskin, um, it seems it's not an uncommon scenario. So I've received no less than 27 emails from people saying they've witnessed similar activities in their units, some with mixed results. Some people got caught by, by their rank, some did not, and a couple needed medical attention. Uh, one story I was reading t uh, basically said that your foreskin can only stretch so much before it starts to split, and that was the result of... Uh, like he won the dare, but uh, ended up having to go see the medics for it. Um, I'm presuming, like uh, this is just my mental image, that it was something along the lines of how you like fill a water balloon up to a point where suddenly it just, just pops. I imagine it, some, something like that. that. That's my mental image. Um, so I'm gonna leave you with that um, and move on to the next story. Now, I have to also remind people that we don't use real names. Please, please, when you send things in, to the stories about Kevin podcast at gmail.com email address. Call people Kevin or don't use a name. Um, I have to change them and I would prefer to not actually know who these people are because 
I know that it's going to happen when I get a story in and I'm going to actually know the individuals involved and you know, I, I don't want to. Um, I might recognise the stories like I did that one before, um, but I don't want to know names. So this next story is about the best truckie I ever met, Kevin. The story about Kevin putting his hands over his eyes reminded me of this. So I'll give you two stories about Kevin. First up, he was not a good driver. To be honest, no one knows how he ever got his code. The cunt could not change gears to save himself. He was atrocious at it. Couldn't judge the size, would constantly hit gutters with either the front or rear tyres, and would actually hit fixed objects like buildings. At some point we thought he should be trade tested. Anyway, he had his codes tested when he decided out bush one day that he wanted to park his truck in a certain spot in the position, a little off where it was parked. There was a tree in the way. Now artillery pushes trees over with Max, they do it all the time, however they are generally small trees and they use the corner off the bull bar where it is the strongest. Not Kevin. He lines up the dead centre of the bull bar with his big fuck off gum tree that has been around since the dawn of time, puts it in low range and floors it, proceeding to buckle the bumper and blow the radiator out. Fucking idiot. The second story I have for him is that same exercise. After fixing his truck and no idea how he did it to this day, but he manages to somehow miss a gear, jammed up the gearbox somehow and managed to blow it out the bottom of the truck. Gear oil and shit went everywhere. Those gearboxes are tough. The Rekimex that came out said they'd never heard of someone blowing a gearbox apart. Now this actually isn't the first Mac I've ever heard of that's had the radiator busted because some cunt thought, you know, big truck, push big tree over. It's like, as a, when, when I myself was a truckie, I saw some really, really dumb stuff. And this, this is kind of one of the dumbest things I ever saw was people that thought, well, it's a truck, it can just push trees over. That's not how it works, guys. Um, but this is, this is the first time where I heard someone blow a gearbox. Hey guys, Future Scotty here. I'm just going through editing and I'm realizing that I'm getting quite a lot of trucky stories sent in, um, probably because I was a truckie and this is making me wonder, have my fellow truckies been listening to this and sending me in their stories? Is this getting shared around RACT circles? Um, and more than what I would like to admit is none of the truckies that I know or serve with have been coming up and saying hello to me and telling me they listen to the podcast. So I'm just wondering, where this is going because I have not seen this being shared and I'm curious why I'm getting sent so many truck stories. Thank you. Now to turn it over a notch, as I don't want to burn through too many listener stories, I recently contacted the War Memorial and asked them to put me onto their catalogue of stories. Well, I didn't ask for that, I just asked, you know, where's the best place to do some research to find some historical stories. Um, and they, they sent me back a whole heap of links. Um, so and I will be putting these links in the description because as we know, the War Memorial curates a whole heap of really cool stuff. Um, and there's, there's thousands of stories on there. Um, some have been a really great read. There's also a DVA catalogue of stories, which I pulled today's, today's story from. Um, and I know a lot of these stories have been curated, sent in by veterans um, before they've passed away, or you know, it's just part of getting all their stories recorded down and, and, and documented into history so that we, we have that preserved for the future. However, I think it, like, it is getting to the point where a lot of these stories, they're on the website, and aside from people like myself who occasionally go on there and read them and, and might have a bit of a chuckle or something, um, or just read them as part of like research in history or something, you know, high school kids researching you know, history of Korean War and stuff and picking these stories out, these stories probably are going to go you know, pretty much unknown, or may never, some, some may go on there and just never be read. So I'm going to pull some out randomly and then insert them into the podcast so we can get those stories out there. Now today's story is about uh, Dick Turner and I pulled that off the Anzac portal for DVA which you can just find by googling DVA Anzac portal. Um, it's anzacportal.dva.gov.au. 
forward slash stories and you'll find some really interesting stories on there. Having lied about his age to join the army in 1942, Dick Turner was serving in New Guinea when the truth was discovered. He was only 16 and he told the recruiting officer he was two years older than that. Of course, he was sent home. Two years later, at the age of 18, he joined the Royal Australian Air Force and travelled to Canada under the Empire Air Training Scheme, where he eventually qualified as a pilot, just as the war in Europe was ending. Disappointed that he had not been able to contribute to the cause, he became a civilian but re rejoined the RAF in 1949 and was serving with 77 Squadron in Japan for almost 12 months before the Korean War started. Dick Turner had two tours of duty with the Royal Australian Air Force, the first in Japan flying Mustangs and the second based in Korea flying Meteor Jet Fighters. In all, he flew 244 individual sorties in a wide range of weather conditions and earned a distinguished flying cross. Having taken part in so many missions, it was inevitable that some would be more memorable than others. But Dick recalls one in particular, a raid on a railway tunnel, with some embarrassment. During a pilot's operational life, events occur which not only cause instant fear, but trigger a mental response, which on later reflection can only be described as crass stupidity, Dick said. Being human, the tendency is to banish both the fear and the response into the deepest recesses of the mind, revealing them to no one, especially the stupidity bit. Only after many years can the mind be persuaded to give up its darkest secrets to public scrutiny. In psychiatric circles, it is known as the what the hell syndrome. During the early days of the Korean War, we were carrying out a ground interdiction roll from a PSP strip at Taegu, with a front line no more than five miles away. The North Koreans were resupplying by train during the night, avoiding daylight air attacks by running the trains into the mountain tunnels at nightfall. Our intelligence quickly became aware of this tactic and constant efforts were made to seal both ends of the tunnels, hopefully with the train still inside. At a briefing on one such mission, we were told the expected enemy flak would be not light to non-existent. Heartened by this, I confidently settled into my rocket dive, retrimmed the aircraft, put the pipper on the tunnel entrance, and prepared for a nice easy shoot. Suddenly, the side of the mountain seemed to erupt. Streams of tracer fire poured up, lazily at first, and then with frightening rapidity, flicking over both wings and around the fuselage. All thoughts of an accurate strike disappeared, which was a frightful admission. I was only concerned as to how the hell I was going to get out of this situation, he added. Now comes the stupid part. Although the flak was intensifying by the second, I had not been hit. Displaying a remarkable ca capacity for self-deception based on logical thinking, I convinced myself that I must in some sort of safety cone and all that was necessary to ensure my survival was to continue along the existing flight path without deviation and all would be well. So I did and it was. The principle of exquisite masterly inactivity carried out to perfection. Releasing my rocket load at approximately the right height, I hauled back on the stick tightened the sphincter, slipped over the mountaintop and headed for home unscathed. Over the years I have frequently thought about this mission and my feelings during it. I am grateful that the episode went largely unobserved by people on our side anyway. Another set of eyes may have seen it differently. You know the sort of thing, complete disregard for own safety, relentlessly attack the target through a storm of etc etc. It would have been humiliating having to say to the monarch at the investiture, I'm sorry man, I cannot accept this, it didn't happen that way at all. Having read the above, you will readily understand my reluctance in bringing the matter forward. Never in the whole history of aerial warfare has such a saga of poltroonery, poltroonery, is that even a word? Poltroonery. And irrational behaviour been brought to the attention of one's peers. I will try to do better in the next war. Whatever Dick Turner may have written about that particular incident, there was little doubt that on other occasions he knew exactly what he was doing. On 6th of September 1952, his squadron was called up to attack a vitally important target consisting of a dangerous build-up of enemy troops in the northeastern sector of Korea, according to the official citation for his ward of the DFC, 
which is the distinguished flying cross. Flying Officer Turner led this raid and despite adverse weather conditions and intense accurate anti-aircraft fire, brilliantly led the attack and the squadron destroyed the target. He went on to say that F.O. Turner had displayed courage and tenacity of the highest order. Dick Turner returned to Korea in April 2001 as a member of the 50th anniversary commemorative mission that included representatives of all services in the Korean War. More than 17,500 Australian men and women saw service in the Royal Australian Navy, Australian Army and Royal Australian Air Force from 1959 to 1953, including 1,216 who were wounded, 29 taken prisoner of war and 339 killed. The material for this article was supplied by Dick Turner of Victoria. The entry onto this site was made on the 8th of the 1st, 2002 at 10.32am and accessed on the 27th of the 8th, 2023 at 11.23am. Anyway, I'm going to go back to the weekly schedule of Monday mornings now. I'd really love to get more listener stories and I'll try and toss, toss it up with some historical stories, some independent research on some interesting things, both Australian and otherwise. And I really, really want to thank the Australian War Memorial for providing me with a bunch of links and resources that they sent. Thank you very much. I actually wasn't expecting you to reply to the email and I have a strong suspicion that the couple of streams that I got in Canberra within the next the 24, 48 hours following my email to the War Memorial may have been them listening to the podcast. Um, so if you did listen, thank you very much. Hopefully you're one of the people that subscribed to me. Please submit your stories to the stories about Kevin podcast at gmail.com I'm going to read everything that comes in. Of that, that, that's a promise. I'm reading everything that you guys are sending me. Some of it might not make it on the show. Some of it might be little short stories, like little one-two liners. Um, like those, I might do an episode of really short stories. Um, you know, if, if you can fill an A4 page, that's about what I want. Um, you know, that, those, those make a good bit of, of, of depth. Um, so yeah, please, thank you for listening um, and have a great day.